Welcome to episode 23 of After the Breach, a podcast for whale enthusiasts by whale enthusiasts, that being your hosts, Jeff Friedman and Sarah Shimazu. Our last couple of episodes, we took you on the road during our trip to Bremer Bay, Western Australia, and now we're back home. April is joining us again as we finish up this three-part series about everything that we experienced during our time on the water with natural lease charters and the amazing orcas of the Bremer Canyon sub-basin. So bear with us a little bit as we're still jet-lagged, um, but we couldn't wait to share the rest of what we had. So, hey, Jeff. Hey, April. Ahoy. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Jeff. Well, welcome home, everybody. Yeah, long, long trip, lots of jet lag, lots of fatigue, but uh, what an amazing month uh, in, in Australia. Yeah, it was great. So we've talked about a lot on our last couple of episodes, but diving right in, I think one of the things that surprised maybe all of us, but definitely Jeff, you were, you were very entranced by this and keep sharing this is how we found the whales in like one spot every single day almost. Yeah. And I I think we mentioned this a little bit on the previous episodes, but it's really such a, a huge contrast to what we're used to when we go whale watching up in the Pacific Northwest and every day is different. Whales are traveling 50 to hundred miles. Groups are coming in and out. Uh, never know where they're going to be, if they're here, uh, what we're going to find. And so it every day here starts with a search and we talk about it. We, we refer to it as finding a needle in a haystack every single day. And most days we do find that. It is so different there that they take us out to what they refer to as the hot spot. And it sounds funny, but we were out, you were out more, but April and I were out 16 days. And in those 16 days, we saw killer whales 14 of the 16 days. And on 13 of the 14 days, we found them in the hotspot. And amazing. It's, it's incredible. I, I'll, if I'm able to, I can post a, a graphic. I was dropping pins on a nav chart on my, on my phone, and I would drop a pin on our very first sighting of killer whales each day. And if you open up the app and you look at it, it just looks like one pin. But as you zoom in, you see more and more pins. It's like 14 pins within a kilometer radius of each other. Yeah, and we never get that. There's one other pin that I have, and it's 15 miles away from the hotspot where we found them patrolling another canyon. And when I was talking to the captain with Natural East Charters, and I was saying that at home, if we find whales 15 miles away from where they were the day before... We consider it that they didn't go anywhere. And it was almost like a jaw drop reaction. Like 15 miles away for them is it's like, whoa, they're way, way far from where they should be. Right. And I, I think you you said this too, and this is a good point, is like these whales that we are seeing down in the Burma Canyon are traveling likely 75 to 100 miles in a day, just like any other, you know, whale out there, you know, killer whale we've seen. Um, we don't know that for sure because we're not tagging them, but they're continually moving and traveling. Uh, they're just not traveling anywhere. They're just, you know, in circles and kind of patrolling. Like April talked, you talked about the patrolling on the last episode, this thousand meter contour line and kind of working east to west and then back into the hotspot again and then, you know, heading west out of the hotspot and then coming back east into it again. So they're they're moving constantly. Uh, they're okay. zigzagging a lot. We just don't have the, you know, perspective of having like islands around to tell that they've turned around and 
distantly you can see the sand dune sometimes if it's you know clear out but really it's just kind of a blank slate of open ocean out there yeah and that's really true unless you've got your compass open and you're really watching it or you're close enough to shore which sometimes there was a lot of shoreline we could see you don't get a good perspective when they change direction or they flip or we we have so many landmarks that we can use in the Salish Sea but out there it's just wide open yeah i mean there there were to to both of your points there were many times where we were uh, with a group of killer whales out in, in the canyon. And I was continually taking out my phone to see, to look at the chart to see what, what direction we were going in because you really just can't tell and you can't really tell when we turn. Um, and it is, it's just, I think a lot of it goes to show the abundance of food that they have in those canyons and the abundance of food that, especially for the big killer whales that are, that is in the Salish sea, but it's, it's, here it's spread over a much wider geographic area. I mean, really all the way down to California and all the way up to Alaska here. And so for them patrolling here, they're patrolling a much, much larger geographic range. Right. The 15 mile uh, day, that was one of those where it was really calm. And to their point, naturalist charters, much harder to find them in calm weather so they went to did they call that a secondary hot spot that's what craig craig mentioned it was it was a secondary hot spot i'm not sure exactly how often they see them but they they were um there was another canyon over there Mm -hmm. there's a lot of so we uh, just interrupt real quick we say like oh the whales are in the bremer canyon there's a lot of canyons like right in close proximity to where we are in this like really narrow like kind of hot spot where Jeff you've dropped your pins and a lot of times we weren't actually over the Bremer Canyon we were over kind of some of the offshoots of other canyons there's like Henry Canyon and Knob Canyon and Hood Hood Canyon Canyon. so um, they're kind of all in that small area. So that 15 mile was another canyon I'm assuming they must see them over there, but let's talk for a minute about those calm days that that you mentioned, April, because it it was very interesting that it seems like on the calm days, it requires more of a, of a search to find them. They're they're generally not in that same one kilometer radius on those calm days. Which for us, we mentioned this earlier, like for us, a calm day makes it easier to find whales. Yeah, definitely. I know. I when I check the windy forecast and it's purple on my phone i'm like yes we're gonna have a you know great day out there i can go anywhere we're gonna find whales and and when you see that when you're down in in bremer you're like oh yeah i mean the crew is like oh we you know (laughs) this is gonna be a tough day yeah isn't that funny and just for context when windy is purple that means it's gonna be flat calm and almost no wind which we do love that in the sailor sea we do, and not so much down in uh, Bremer Canyons. And how interesting is that? So, obviously, there's there's something going on. And the, uh, the theory that I kept hearing was that without wind, without wind chop, it's much quieter, so it makes it harder for the whales to find food. Do they, are they patrolling further then? 
I would almost venture to guess, and I'm just going to clarify for everybody listening, like this is totally my own hypothesis and not... I can't wait to hear this. Do it. I, I, yeah. I have no idea what you're going to say, but I, I, I like your whale. Yeah, I don't have I don't have any science to back this up. <laughs> your, your whale theory is good here, so do it. Yeah, on calm days, without the wind and the wind chop and all of that, not that it's harder for them to find food, but it's easier for their food to hear them coming. And so when the beaked whales are down there, it's easier for them to hear a group of killer whales at the surface waiting um, than it is, it, you know, potentially to like... On a, on a day when you have that wind noise and current noise and all that coming. So that that's kind of my theory is that it's really about them being able to kind of like mask themselves amidst this other noise, whereas on a calm day, not so much. Totally makes sense. It, it does make sense. And I think that it's very interesting that I, I guess that, especially if they're hunting beaked whales that do these long dives, the beaked whales, if they're hearing the killer whales, can be more deliberate about when and where they're going to surface, knowing if killer whales are around. And I also think it kind of matches something that we do see here. This is something that would be really interesting to study and start to document uh, the data. We see Biggs killer whales frequently hunting right around or right after either a ferry or a container ship pass by. And so that, that sound may be masking their presence from their prey, just like the large waves and, and bigger waters are, are masking the presence of killer whales down in Bremer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also kind of right around those like rocky shoals and reefs and areas here where water is hitting rock um, and creating that kind of mixing and, um, you know, it's very, very noisy. I, it, we've, I think we've all, you know, kind of either put our phone in, in the water and listened to it afterwards or been in the water and listened to that when water's hitting rock. I mean, it's, it's so noisy. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I think that this also goes to, uh, you know, we've gotten so heightened in sensitivity to sound and whales. And I don't know that we can generalize. I think different whales are going to take sound differently. But in terms of what we're seeing with killer whales, I think the more that we're seeing, the more we don't really know. Yeah. No, I see. Yeah. All the time. That's why we have all of these extra theories. And the more we know, the more we have questions. Exactly. And, uh, you know, my question, my big question is there's this big absolute takeaway of like sound is bad. For, for whales and they want it purely quiet. And my question is, is that actually true? Is that absolute? I, it looks like some of the killer whales that are hunting marine mammals, they need sound around them to, it helps, it assists their hunting. Yeah. It just depends what kind of sound and yeah, but I, I don't think we can make any definite conclusions on that, but I, yeah, I mean, sound is, when when you say the word sound, especially within our like community of whale, you know, um, whale people, we th- automatically think of anthropogenic sound, of human created sound, and I'm not saying whether that's good or bad. I don't I don't think there's like a distinction where it's 
all one or all the other. But sound is a natural part of this world. Sound existed before humans existed. Uh, They're used to sound in their environment. So, of course, you know, that would be a part of of how they move through their world, of how they work, um, you know, in finding food and anything they do. I would also jump in there with uh, that these are animals that I, I like to think that they're experts at adapting to their environment and to changes in their environment. And that uh, some anthropogenic sound, like we've talked about with fairies and, and container ships, that the, we're seeing the bigs hunting and they seem to be adapting to that. And that's, uh, like I said, it would be cool to get some, some data around that. Right. And it also begs the question, because we show our guests the brain of a killer whale versus a human. And to simplify things, killer whales basically have a third lobe that humans have not developed because they've been evolving for 30 million years. When you start looking at that and you look at how much more gray area they have and how much more abilities they have to process information, I think, Jeff, you brought this theory up years ago. Do they have the capability of basically labeling sounds and so they can, oh, that's a container ship. Oh, that's a ferry. I'm going to get rid of that because right now I'm listening for a sea lion or a seal. Yeah, it's, it, it really fascinates me. And I think this really just goes to the point that we think we know so much because a, couple, a few studies have been done or multiple studies have been done to mm. show things through modeling. But I think the real takeaway for me, and, and I think we see this in examples on the water all over the world with killer whales, we really don't know. We talk on the boat a lot about how these are such advanced acoustic animals and their brains are so developed and they use sound so much more than we do. And I think my big takeaway in that is that means we don't really know how they are processing sound, how they're using it. Uh, we know that they are processing it way beyond our capabilities, but what that means, we don't really know. Yeah. yeah. We just don't know enough. Well, I think as humans, and we're kind of getting off topic here, so I'm going <laughs> to say this and then we can Oh, there's we no such thing. But I think as humans, we like to deal in absolutes. Like we like to have our box. We like to have our understanding of this. And that's how it should be. Like we want to understand and then that's going to be applicable to everything else that we we associate with that. So we like we like it neat and tidy, you know, and there's I don't think there's a neat and tidy with killer whales, really with the natural world, like we're, right. there was a lot of ego coming in from the humans, that, from, you know, humans that are just trying to understand, you know, from a kind of almost a place of like superiority to animals. And Jeff, we were talking about this off the air earlier is we just like to, we, we like to put things in boxes. We like to have absolutes. We like to say like sound is, is bad or, you know, wh- whatever. And it's not, it's not cut and dry, right? It's not black and white. It's just not so. Uh, by the way, there's there's no such thing as off topic. The topic is whales, so anything that deals with that, <laughs> we're good. <laughs> but but yes, let's 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 uh, move on to uh, we we still have lots to talk about. So we talked a lot in the last several episodes about uh, the the hunting that we saw and the the beaked whale predations, but we haven't talked a whole lot about some of the social behaviors that we saw. 
uh, which we don't see as frequently uh, with that population. It doesn't mean it's not going on, but we, we don't see it as often um, or as long lasting. Uh, but we did get to see some, some pretty good social interactions while we were there. Yeah, I would say seeing them kind of being that cuddly, socially rolling, even vocalizing at the surface, just not something I see very often with with the whales down there, at least in my very limited time on the water. It's just not a behavior that I see very often. I have seen it, obviously. Jeff, I think our, your first trip on the water, it was a crazy social day. There was breaching. In and 2020. Yeah, we're talking about setting the bar high. It was the first, it was, I don't know, a few dozen killer whales rolling all over each right. other right in front of the boat all day. Right, and that is, I don't want to say atypical, but it's not something we see very often. And then towards the end of this month, it seemed like we saw it quite a bit. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I saw it for several days in a row. I think, unfortunately, I think that we was were, after we you were left. Say, Yeah, we had just left. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Sarah. <laughs> but we did, we did get a couple of because um, April, you you posted a, a great reel with uh, with Twist, and uh, and and we also and I had one with uh, with Barry White that of, of whales ro- yeah. rolling rolling around each other, and it's it is interesting that they seem to do it pretty often. Right in front, they come right in in front of the bow and match the speed of the boat and start rolling on each other. Really cool to see. And we did see there was one day that, and we saw this whale several days, but this was the first day that we saw him. It was on one of those social days and really special whale named Chopper. And Chopper is four years old. Is that correct? I think three. I think Chopper, I think she was born in 2021. Okay. And well, coming three. Okay, and so you know, you always okay. know my first guess is going to be wrong. That's okay. Um, I'm used to it. But, ch- but Chopper has a uh, <laughs> Chopper has no dorsal fin, but Chopper did have a dorsal fin. Chopper was actually first seen by Naturalist Charters in the Lewin Canyon, which is on the, again on the continental shelf, but off of Augusta, which is far to the west, um, off of Cape Naturalist. And they went out there in August, so during their winter down there, and went out to the shelf. And I'm not sure if they were running a pelagic trip or a bird trip or what, but they found killer whales, and they found this pod that they had seen previously in Bremer. Among them, a new little calf with Hermes, which is the matriarch of one of the pods. And the calf looked by all accounts, like a normal calf, had a, had a dorsal fin. And then the next time they saw that, the following winter in Bremer, calf had no dorsal fin, uh, had been removed. It looks completely healed. Yes, completely healed. And does not seem to be impacting him at, in any, any way. No, and Chopper's not the only orca in the population that doesn't have a dorsal fin. Though Chopper's interesting in that the... I don't even know what you want to call it. The line where <laughs> it was removed, uh, whether by a line or by a bite, seems to have these kind of like vertical scar scarring along that almost look like teeth marks to me. But again, what do I know? Just very, very interesting. It 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 definitely does, and it, but it it makes me wonder: like, are those teeth marks from a killer whale, a shark? Are they markings from being entangled in line? Um, if they are teeth marks, was that an attack or was that an assistance to get out of something? 
It's just there's yeah. We just don't know. But there's so many questions. Yeah. So, so many questions, and the fact that that there are multiple killer whales with this. Also, the fact that the wound was completely healed by the time he was documented again. It it just doesn't give you much evidence as to, you know, again, we want to wrap everything up in a nice tidy bow and put it in a box. Yeah, that doesn't help us. No, it do- it doesn't. But I think the big takeaway is that he seems to be a fully functioning member of of that group. And in fact, we oh, yeah. we saw him on several predations. And if you watch the video that's posted in the show notes from episode 22 of the, the beaked whale chase, he's in there. You'll if you if you watch it, you'll you'll see him. He comes up and he's right in the mix with with that. Group. Yeah, he's he's totally there with his mom and the rest of the family. Yeah. Yeah, pretty, pretty cool. He, and we saw him on over several days. And I think starting with that social day, uh, he he came yeah. in and that was it was pretty cool. Well, and that one male that uh, was approaching the boat, the, the back of the boat, and turning belly up, he was he was there early on with that boy. So he doesn't have any problem socializing, hunting, playing. He seems very happy and healthy. Yeah, or and he doesn't seem to have any issues checking out uh, people because I think when we first saw him. Uh, April, you and I were out on the bow, and I said to you, I was like, oh, that, that whale's not going to come anywhere near the boat. And Oh, yeah, that didn't matter. <laughs> nope. Yeah. And, He's like, oh, this is the people boat. Let's go check them out. Yeah, as soon as I said, as soon as I said that, he turned and came right into the boat. <laughs> Stupid humans. So it was that day, the first day that we had Chopper um, in the mix with Hermes um, pod. So Hermes is the matriarch. Chopper is her daughter. That was the day of that epic beaked whale predation, the strap tooth beaked whale. Yes. And I think we should talk about that in more detail because that was just like one of the, even if we've talked about it before, let's talk about it again because that just was so epic. It, it was. And kind of brutal, but epic. It was. And, yeah. And what I just got from, from you saying like, I, we may have talked about this one before. But I, one of the things that we all know from going whale watching is you, you come back from whale watching and you have, you saw all this stuff, but as time goes on, memories fade, but there's always something that is lasting forever. And I think from this time at Bremer, that hunt, it will never fade uh, from, from my mind. That's the one that we posted the video from uh, in the show notes right. from the last episode. It was so different from what we had been coached to expect. You know, oh, we see them surging and these whales are coming from every direction and they're racing to get to their prey. And this was so different from that. It was. It was very different. We This was the one hunt that we saw where there was no, quote unquote, surging from, from the whales that we were with. Yeah, and I think like a lot of the times with the hunts and surging, we're, we're not always with the whales that find the prey. So if we had been with other whales that had heard this pod find the beaked whale, then we might have been with whales that were surging during this hunt. But we were with the group that found 
this whale and this whale made it to the surface, which is not something that happens on, on a lot of the hunts that are, are seen out there. That's a good point. Yeah. Typically they, the, they say that it happens underneath the surface and we don't really see anything until we see a slick. Now, if I recall correctly, we were with uh, that juvenile male who was coming up and checking out the GoPro uh, and Chopper mm-hmm. was there and there were a few spread out whales and they were, they were not patrolling. They were just kind of playing around. And then suddenly they were grouped up and moving. Mm-hmm. Right. And the way you're describing it, Jeff, it's like, oh, we had a couple here and a couple there, which is true. We had somewhere around three to five. Then this beaked whale reaches the surface. And how many whales were there? right behind that beaked whale. 20, How many orcas? 20 to 30, I would say. Yeah, it was a big yeah. group. And it's amazing that... Huge. Huge group. And it happened, like, it just happened so quickly and out of nowhere where we're with three to five whales and we know they're really, they're spread out. But then all of a sudden, they're we have three to five that are now together and for the first time in several hours, they're actually moving. It was almost like we were babysitting the juveniles. It was almost like the boat was babysitting <laughs> the juveniles and the adults were off like patrolling. patrolling. Yeah. Um, you know, cause yeah. I don't recall seeing, you know, I recall seeing some of those whales, but I definitely don't recall seeing all of the whales that we had in that once they got together in that big group and were, you know, pursuing this beaked whale. Uh, and I think they were kind of probably spread out. We were, we were probably in a line and we were one of the individuals in this line and, and we were, you know, the source of, entertainment for the kids i think that's very accurate because it was the juveniles that were coming up to the gopro and playing around and taking photos and and uh not just at the stern but they were swimming up to the bow and swimming in between the the two hulls of the boat and it it was the juveniles and then all of a sudden it was like they were called and like hey back with mom back with mom and then it was so quick, it was within a few minutes that all of a sudden it's like, whoa, there are a ton of whales here. And then somebody from Natural East Charters met, yelled out, like, there's a beak whale up 150 meters ahead of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And within a minute, that beaked whale, the orcas had closed the gap and that beaked whale was just barely in front of them. Yeah, and and you can see that in the, the like the second part of the video that that we posted. Uh, it's also on our, our after the breach YouTube channel, and you can see them catching up to him. And it wasn't like this slow approach, but it wasn't surging. Yeah. No, it was just it was just fast travel. If we were with orcas in Salish Sea, we would have just considered that to be oh, they've got some place to go. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, I wonder if they just, they, they know that, that be, they're going to get them. Like, you know, it didn't seem like there was any urgency. I mean, they were all in a very tight formation, but it didn't seem urgent. Yeah. And I don't know enough about their hunting strategies with beaked whales. Their beaked whales can hold their breath a long time for those that are not familiar with them. There's like, I think 22 different species of beaked whale and they can range in breath hold from like an hour to almost four hours, I think is the the record depending on species. And so they're extremely deep divers and they can stay down a long time. And I think once they get back up to the surface, they have to kind of come up to oxygenate. 
And that's when the killer whales intercept them. So I think this likely my, my theory is that this whale was probably winded from a long dive and the orcas were using that to their advantage and just keeping it going and going, not, not super fast, but fast enough to like, it couldn't really, you know, oxygenate. And also there were killer whales underneath it. We could see that as, you know, the killer whales would kind of catch up. You'd see a flash of turquoise underneath the beaked whale and then they'd drop back and you'd see kind of that bloom of blood um, as they obviously inflicted damage on it that we couldn't see um, from our perspective until they actually initiated that kind of final final engagement. Well, and I will say that the video, I stopped the video before. It's not graphic. There's no um, predation in the video. It was just the catching up to it. And then I stopped taking video at that point and I was really just taking it in mostly. I was taking a few stills, but the two of you got some incredible photos from the actual predation, which was, uh, it definitely was graphic and, uh, it was, it was, it was powerful. Yeah, it was, you know, and I, I keep going back to, cause we do humans. It's a, it's a trait of ours. We like to relate it to something that is, is common to us. So for me, it's relating orcas to taking down a stellar sea lion. A lot of these beaked whales are 2,000 to 2,500 pounds. So it just goes so much faster than a sea lion predation. And like Sarah, you said early on, they were inflicting damage as, they got right up next to the beaked whale. And so by the time the coup de gras was delivered, it was it didn't take much of anything at all. Towards the end, I think both of you got photos of they they lifted the whale the beaked whale out of the water, which I think was like the final shot. Yeah. yeah there was like a sequence of it being thrown or punted out of the water. At least one occasion, I think there were two actually where it did that. And the first one was very high out of the water. And April, I know you got the shot. You could actually see where they had started to peel away the blubber and and skin on the abdomen. And it was pretty, I mean, we know, and I'm not, in saying this, and I think I said this last time too, in saying this, I'm not commenting on on the orcas like i'm calling i've heard people call them mean and murderers and you name it like i've heard them call these whales all manner of names they are just doing what they are are built to do that they're they're animals right right? they're just they're surviving so they're killing this whale and they're surviving and that's it so that's i'm making no commentary on that from a human perspective it was brutal to watch and to think about and i think because we we empathize with the whale that is being predated on that's just normal for a human i think in most most cases and so it was it was pretty brutal to watch i would say it was you know probably the second most brutal hunt i've ever seen in, in all my years watching killer whales do what they do and that's again not a reflection on killer whales it's just on on my own feelings towards what this whale went through and imagining me swimming ahead of this group of killer whales not as a human obviously but it's just it's hard it's it was a brutal hunt to watch but it was also a really amazing uh display of the cooperation and coordination of this huge group of killer whales in successfully feeding their families yeah and i think that's a a great takeaway is that these killer whales 
are cooperating. And most of the time, it's about any population. They cooperate, whether you're talking about a small match line or several groups coming together. They cooperate to make sure that their families get fed. That's what it's about. Got to make sure Chopper gets enough to eat. Yeah, I mean, this is this is what they evolved to do. This is this is who they are. I don't. It, it's not our real our place to judge how another. Absolutely spe- not. I mean, especially with the way uh, we produce food for us in a very industrial way. That's probably less humane than what what that beak. Oh, it went is. Through. Yeah. Um, and and I like to think that. You know, my hope is that beaked whale was very old, end of life, and had cancer. And this was uh, this was this was a nice thing. But th- that's what I say about everything that I see that 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 gets taken down. Let's talk about some other takeaways, just because uh, I I don't know that we're gonna revisit Bremer until we revisit Bremer. Let's talk about some of the big takeaways from there. I mean, mine is it's not just from Bremer, but Australia in general. Uh, I spent some time in in Sydney as well on this trip. And one of the big takeaways is compared to North America is there's a different relationship that people have down there with whales. Part of that is they see whales uh, everywhere along their coasts and uh, they get the humpback migrations twice a year. And that's probably their most frequently seen, seen whale. Uh, but you talk to people in Australia about whale watching or whales, and everybody has some personal experience, whether they've gone whale watching or whether it's like, oh, I see whales when I go out on my fishing boat or when I'm running in the morning along the, the coastline. I see see whales uh, migrating down the coast. And it's just interesting. It's And in North America, the majority of the population has no firsthand experience with whales. It helps that 90% of the population in Australia lives on the coast, but, um, yeah. but yeah, definitely. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it changes the conversation and it, it seems like they're a little, like the general population is a little bit more well-versed in whales. And then they also are very aware they have a very long history of whaling. Um, you know, not now, obviously, but that is a culture that at one point was steeped in in the whaling industry, and and really until fairly recently, till the eighties, I think. Yeah, well, and and seventy late seventies. Well, and people don't realize 80s. us too. I mean, yeah. it was in, it was up until the mid nineteen eighties, there were commercial whaling fleets off the coast of California. Right, right, and there's a lot of whaling culture that most humans around the world don't realize how long it lasted for. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the people at, at Natural East Charters, I mean, we were talking and they said, you know, people came to realize that we never should have been hunting them and that they are obviously they're better off, but we're better off too, watching them and learning about them and giving them, you know, respecting their right to, to be. Yeah, there's a really amazing museum in Albany, Western Australia, that had that was the last whaling station, and and it's the most complete whaling station, and it's now a museum. So you can go there and walk through, and they've kept it all the way it was with the decks and the all these different 
you know, pieces of it that were important to the whaling operation back then. And they have videos playing with, and some of the docents, um, volunteers there were actually whalers that worked out of the station when it was operational back in the seventies. And it's really interesting to listen to them. There's some videos with them and that interviewing them about how their views changed as they were in this, in this profession, because back then in that area, that was the only way to really make a livelihood. That was the only way to really support your family. Um, and it was, it was interesting to like see how, you know, we, we come at it from a save the whales perspective. Like we love whales. We can't imagine killing them and seeing this kind of perspective from a different perspective, I guess, of these, you know, men who were, hired on young because that was a way to support their families and that was the way to do it back then and going out and killing whales and realizing like these are very intelligent animals and sentient animals and what have you. It's just, I, I'm not explaining it well, but it, if you're ever in Western Australia and have a chance to get down to Albany, the whaling station really is an interesting uh, stop. Yeah, that was a, a big miss. I, I was not able to get there and so I'm just going to have to go back. Um, Albany's oh, about, bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Albany's about an hour and a half or so away from, from Bremer. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to go back and, and check that out. Very interesting too, because they have some skeletons from mostly from animals that have washed up on beaches around, um, the area. And they had a couple of beaked whale skeletons, the grazed beaked whales, which we watched get eaten a couple times, I think. I'll bet there are lots of our beaked whale skeletons at the bottom of Bremer Canyon. Probably. So one more takeaway, and then I want to hear from you too. So along the same lines is it seems like people get very excited and are happy when they hear you're going out with, uh, to go whale watching down there. We talked to some people at, I think I talked to a woman at the post office in Bremer and her comment was, that's great that you're getting out there. It's really important to go see them. And I think they feel and, and they understand that going whale watching is partly education, it's partly conservation, and it's, it's really important for people to have those experiences, not just for the people, but obviously important for the whales. Yeah, it's an important yeah. connection for people. and That's what they always say. You save what you love. Yep. So what were, I want to hear from you two on some of your big, big takeaways from from this year in Bremer for you, Sarah, your fourth year. Yeah. Fourth year. And April, your first time. The very first time. I don't know, Sarah, you'll have to, you'll have to tell me if naturally charters uses the word patrolling or if that was just kind of the verb I ended up with. No, I think they use um, it. I think. They okay. Do. Cause yeah, because I, I just I landed on that, and it was probably from listening to them. And that was just the really interesting part and a big takeaway for me is going out there and seeing these whales. And you see different orcas from day to day in the same area, which then begs the question, knowing how far they can swim, how far they can hear, how many whales are really out there? You know, we see three to five, and then the hunt is on, and you've got, 20, 30, even more orcas. So it's a big, vast area. And I think we're missing so much of what's going on. And then back to the culture and the people there, 
something that was really interesting to me was once you got out of the Bremer Bay area, there were a lot of people, they talk about humpback whales and even uh, the southern right whales, but not a lot of people knew that there was orca whale watching. That's it's very true. It's interesting that a lot of people in like especially when I was in Sydney and I mentioned Bremer Bay, they were like, "Where? Where? Yeah, yeah still, what's that? Still not not well known. Um, we've had people here on our boats, you know, that are from Australia, and we're like, "Oh, you came all the way up here. Have Just you been? Have you been down to Bremer Bay in Western Australia?" <laughs> and they have no idea that there are killer whales there. But it, I mean, it's very new. It's it's yeah. really. Less than less than ten years that they've been running trips out there, right? Yeah, trips. right. And it's and it's not like a destination in its own right in in many ways. So it's not like if they had killer whale watching uh, out of Sydney, the word would probably travel much. much oh yeah, faster. yeah, because it's a much bigger urban area, and I don't know that people really watch much TV down there, but it's going to be on the news. Yeah, it's an, an interesting takeaway, and it's you're you're absolutely right. Once you get out of the Bremer area, uh, people really don't know. A lot of people are not familiar that there are killer whales in in Australia, and, and really not just in Bremer. Right. You know, there's a group up in northwest Australia, kind of off Ningaloo, and there are killer whales that are seen off the east coast. And there was, of course, Old Tom uh, out of Eden. That helped the whalers. Mm-hmm. So there's a history of killer whales on the Australian coast and just kind of re, re-emerging into our, our narrative now. So Sarah, fourth time there, many to come. Uh, what, what's, what are you walking away with this time? I don't even know yet what I'm walking away from. <laughs> it was just so different from what I thought I was going to see this season you know last compared to last January I wanted to come down for another January so I had that same time of year and I was honestly expecting to see the same families on a day-to-day basis that we saw last year and I didn't I mean we I did see the same groups I think I saw every single group last year I saw this year with addition some new new whales this year lots of new whales this year yeah, I don't know. I don't even know. <laughs> do you know do what you, the takeaway should be? Do you know how many undocumented whales you you ended up having? I will have to look and want we'll to chat about that on another episode. But I would say about a dozen. Wow. Um, not that wow. necessarily were not had never been documented before, but had not been in the catalog before. But there were some that. There were some that had never been seen before. Definitely, at least. Eight or nine wow. that have never been seen before. Wow, that's wow, inc- right? That's incredible. It, it, and not all like yeah. adults, adults, right. not not just calves. Right. That's adults. the thing, adults. Well, yeah. that, and that makes me think of something you mentioned, April, of of us not really knowing the full picture of what's going on out there. Mm-hmm. Is are we just seeing, you know, just a little part of the group that's out in the canyon and the whales that surge in on the hunts are the ones that are nearby. But if we went three or four kilometers further out on the canyon, are there, are there, are there more out there? And it's just. Right. How, how yeah, somebody far does needs this to go? Do some full-time researching down there. And that's the thing. 
right? These eight or nine whales that have never been observed before have probably been there before. They sure integrated with the whales that we know like they've been there. So, Right, they're not just coming in and being like, hey, I'm Bob. (laughs) Right, nice to meet you. You guys want to meet up for a beach whale hunt? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these, these guys know the regulars, for lack of a better word. So, you know, they're... And the regulars know them. Right. They're around. They just haven't been observed yeah. before. And there's just not a lot of information out there. There's some catalogs that have been done by Project Orca. Uh, they hold the census. And I just don't know exactly if they've seen these whales before. We don't have that information. But to our knowledge... Uh, Machi, who's been out there for seven seasons, all season long, has never seen these whales before. It's a pretty good indication that they're at least not regular visitors to the canyons. And what what makes yeah. that, what makes it so incredible uh, for for anybody that uh, is not as familiar with the whales that we see in our region, something like seeing an undocumented whale that is not a, a new calf will highly highly likely never happen in our lifetime, in our career. I mean, it would be so shockingly groundbreaking if we were out one day watching whales and we saw a, a group of, of two or three whales with whales that we know. And it's like, oh, these two or three are undocumented and have never been seen before. Like, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> no. But I hope I'm there when it does. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah, it just it's fascinating. It's it's a whole new frontier. There's just so much to learn, and I think the more that I'm down there, the bigger the iceberg is that I have of questions. You know, it's it, I'm learning. Yeah, learning iceberg things. Of questions. <laughs> learning things from these whales all the time, and honestly, it just makes me have more questions. So. So while we're talking about all these amazing things we've seen out here in the Bremer Canyon, I think we would be remiss not to give a huge shout out to Natural East Charters. Paul huge. and his crew, just the best of the best down there, really. Like, they're amazing. Absolutely incredible. Uh, yeah, if, if anybody does venture down to Bremer Bay, Natural East Charters are absolutely the, the company to go with. And they, they do run out of Augusta and Dunsboro. Yep. So any time of year you're in Western Australia, you can get out on a tour with them. And I highly recommend it. They're just really, really great, great folks. Well, hopefully we will be bringing you more episodes from Bremer Bay in the future. Uh, we would love to, to go back there. Uh, in the meantime, we're now back on in Friday Harbor. Uh, at least Sarah and I are. April diverted to Florida, but we'll be back here soon. And uh, I will. Yeah. She had to ease her way back into the cold. <laughs> right. Yeah. She got, yeah. Yeah. You got the, the, the best transition of, of all. Yeah. Hope you guys will will join us. We've got some uh, lots of episodes coming up. In the meantime, uh, appreciate you joining us. And whatever you do, make sure that you stay safe out there. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of After the Breach Podcast. If you've enjoyed it and want to help us out, please share this with your friends, family, and any other whale-loving folks you can think of. We would also love to hear your feedback, so please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you have topics you're interested in and would like to hear on the show, please send us an email. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can find us on Instagram as at After the Breach and on Facebook as After the Breach Podcast. And if you'd like to go whale watching with us, then come on up to San Juan Island, Washington State. We run tours with Maya's Legacy Whale Watching, departing just steps away from the ferry landing in beautiful downtown Friday Harbor. It's a great destination for a day trip or multiple days and offers some of the best whale and wildlife viewing in the world. We would love to take you out on the water to see the amazing whales we talk about on our podcast. You can book a tour through the company website at www.sjiwhalewatch.com and make sure to mention you're a podcast listener when you book. Thanks again for listening and remember, stay safe out there.